Good morning. Oh, everyone's still awake. That's a good sign. See if we can keep it that way. Uh, we're going to be finishing our run through the short book of Second Thessalonians this morning. It's only three chapters long, but Paul packs so much into it. He covers a lot of ground. He's, he, we've looked at the second coming. We've heard him encourage the congregation of Thessalonica. And now, right at the end of chapter three, towards the end of the book, he gets all cagney and lacy on you. And he, we've, we've had the good cop, and now comes the bad cop, as he warns the Thessalonians about the problems he sees brewing in their church, and he worries about. And he warns about this fundamental problem with human nature, idleness. You get the feeling Paul's been building up to this point. He's been sort of laying the ground, and then just when they're feeling comfortable, he grabs them by the lapels and yells, get your act together! Or maybe I've just watched too many bad American cop shows, I don't know. But idleness is a problem that's still with us today. It hasn't gone away. Our character as a species hasn't improved with 2,000 years of development. Not since this letter was written anyway. And just in case you're feeling lazy and you don't want to make notes yourself, <laughs> on the back of the sheet, I've actually managed to get organised and not be lazy myself and get organised and get you some notes on the back. But you might need a microscope to read them. When I've looked at them printed out, they're quite small, so apologies if you're squinting. But they're there on the back of the uh, notice sheet if you need them. So, lazy people. Slide to you, thanks. Yate. It's not a self-portrait. Could be close. In August 2009, the Daily Telegraph published a, an article that was titled, One in Six Britons are too lazy to get up to change the TV channel, which sort of pretty much says what the article's about, really. The article says some Britons are so lazy that they'd rather watch a TV programme they don't like than get out of their chair to change the channel. Obviously, this is the days before remote controls were really um, ubiquitous. Nearly one in six people, that's 15%, said if their remote control was broken, they'd continue to watch the same channel rather than get out of the chair. Now, if those surveyed are typical of the wider population, it would mean about 7.3 million Britons are too lazy to walk the steps between their settee and their TV. The researchers interviewed 2,000 adults for this not-for-profit healthcare organisation called the Nuffield Health and found more than half, that's 59%, wouldn't get the, would get the lift rather than just climb two flights of stairs to where they worked. And a third, that's thir or just over a third, 36%, wouldn't run to catch a bus. Now, I wonder which end of the spectrum you tend towards. You probably can tell from my waistline which end of the spectrum I fall towards. Uh, it's a bag of potatoes tied around with a bit of string, I'm afraid. But it has to be said, I'm not great with all forms of exercise. But I will be at the men's walk on the 3rd of March, all being well. I'll be there. I like, if, if there's one thing that can tempt me to do exercise, it's good company and the prospect of rain. So uh, <laughs> we're looking forward to that. But we live in this culture of luxury and convenience, and it's just getting more so. It's our human nature to try and make life as easy as we can for ourselves. And if we do work hard, it's only really to make sure that we get a, an easy time later on. Laziness was a huge problem back in the days that Paul was writing this letter to Thessalonica as well. The Greek culture of the day actually despised manual labour. They saw it as polluting. There was a moral problem with actually doing manual labour. They saw physically there was something that slaves did, something that people who weren't even really human, it was just up to them. People who were truly human had a life of leisure. 
In our, our culture, we see hard work as something that needs to be mechanized out of the situation so our lives can be easier. We develop cars, we develop remote controls for the telly so we don't even have to get out of our chair to change the TV channel. It's something to be avoided so that we can have as much leisure as possible. And then there was also a problem specific to the church that false teachers came along teaching Christ had already returned, as Andy mentioned a couple of weeks ago. So why bother working? If Christ's coming back very soon, what's the point wasting your time working? May as well just sit back, have fun, because Jesus will be there here soon, and he'll take us home. So Paul addressed that theological error in chapter 2, and now he's dealing with the consequences of what was going on. And the consequences were that with cultural influence and the bad theology, some folks become a burden to the church. And the church had to take care of them. And they weren't productive, and they were actually counterproductive. And it hindered the witness of the church. So let's read through the end of chapter 3 of Second Thess- Thess- Thessalonians. Now there's a Second Thessalonians starting at verse 6. Words will be up on the screen if you're too lazy to follow along in your Bible. But uh, <laughs> I won't be looking, because I'll be reading it from mine. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 6. Warning against idleness, it's headed in mine. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who's idle and disruptive and doesn't live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We weren't idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that you'd not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we don't have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. Anyone who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy, they're busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note those who don't obey our instruction in this letter, don't associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet don't regard them as enemies, but warn them as fellow believers. And now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So in verse 6, Paul starts right off the bat by saying, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, keep away from every believer who's idle and disruptive and doesn't live according to the teaching you received from us. So Paul gives this wake-up call with the command and authority of none other than Jesus Christ himself. That's a big deal. When you read something like that in a letter from an apostle, it's a big deal. It's not Paul just using his own authority. He's not just giving examples or explaining best practice that he's seen around the place. It's a big thing to call down the authority of Jesus Christ on a situation. So it should be very serious to our situation as well, in our lives. And the Thessalonians are told to keep away from two things. Notice this. The first one is walking in idleness. Keep away from walking in idleness. So this Greek word, ataktos, if I, ataktos probably, I think I pronounced it right, which is translated idle, in this passage, in our translation, doesn't just mean lazy as we perhaps think of it today. It means to be disorderly, out of the ranks, refusing to do something, deviating from the prescribed order of rule, to be undisciplined. Is an expanded definition of that word. It actually speaks really a wide range of disorderly conduct. 
It's, the, it's got the tone of military service. It has implications for the church, which is supposed to compromise, comprise of disciples, people who are disciplined, who follow discipline. And in context here, it means an unruliness specifically defined by an unwillingness to work. In a military, discipline is really important. Discipline and submission to the chain of command are the foundations of an effective army. If you don't have discipline, you don't have an army. You just have a bunch of folks with guns. If a unit goes into battle with soldiers who just want to do their own thing and don't obey orders, then they're useless. And they're actually probably a danger to themselves as much as anyone else. So when we apply it to the church, it speaks of operating without order, without consideration for other people, without being on the team, so you could say, being part of the family, everybody doing their bit. In the church, there's this same feeling. We've all got a role to play. None of us are a waste of space. We are the family of God, and we're to operate with orderliness and with discipline. So in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40, it says, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. And that's one of the things that should be part, characterize the church as a whole. It doesn't mean that we should have a, like a mechanical order of service. It was the third Sunday after Lent, so we must do this, this, and this every year. That's not, that, it's not talking about that kind of thing. It's talking about a moral issue. It's not a programming issue. So how we live, how we relate to each other, Paul is confronting the do-nothings, the, the freeloaders that crept up and multiplied amongst the unbelievers and saw their home there. The whole group was starting to feel disrupted and defeated and discouraged by the activity of this, these, this group of people, or rather the lack of activity from this group of people. So we get to the second thing he tells them not to do. First, he says, keep away from the brothers walking in idleness. But the second is to keep away from brothers not walking in the tradition that's been received. Now, the tradition here, again, it's not traditions of men. It's not traditions of teachings that tell us what to believe. Now, it's, it's, it's teachings that tell us what to believe and how to behave, how to live. Often the word tradition is, is something that's seen as a bad thing in today's culture. It, it, it's, it's old-fashioned. It speaks of routine and, 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 and boring things. But, but that's not what we're talking about here. The word... we. Are, a lot of us actually have reacted against tradition. The Brethren Church was founded in a reaction against the traditions that had grown up in the established church. But that's not, not what we're talking about. This is speaking of the teaching and the practice of true believers, their traditions, the tradition that evolves specifically around what we believe. Teaching and practice that's given by God not hand, and, and handed down to us through the apostles and, and the word of God, not generated by men afterwards. So we're already warned in the traditions and those teachings and that practice not to be idle. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, the previous letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. Apparently they'd had a problem with it back then because in the first letter, Paul also addressed it and he says, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard amongst you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other and we urge you Brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle. The same word, I can't pronounce it. The same Greek word, those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Warn those who are idle. Another translation, admonish the idle. There it is, those who aren't working, those who are wasting their time, admonish them, tell them off. 
encourage the disheartened and be patient with everybody. Notice that caring heart that comes with the admonishment. The mentoring mentality that Paul has, he doesn't slam people, he helps them out of their rut. They didn't listen though, obviously, so he's having to bring it up again in the second letter. He confronted it actually by his example. Monkey see, monkey do. Do as I say, and do as I, then do as I do. He said, I did these things so you guys would know how you should live. I behaved so you could follow my example. I paid for all my own bread. I worked hard both day and night among you so you guys would understand and then copy what you saw acted out in front of you. But many ignored him and they still continued to justify their bad behaviour with bad theology. And you can always recognise bad theology when it results in bad behaviour. They, they go hand in hand. You can't separate them from each other. It's like in this freezing cold weather we've got this morning, it's like licking a lamppost and then you're stuck. It's inevitable. It will happen. There's lots of parents saying, don't you dare. <laughs> I could have chosen a lot of illustrations. This isn't the best probably, but it made me laugh when I saw it. So I'm just using it. Good teaching should lead to good behavior. Bad teaching inevitably leads to bad behavior. Good behavior preserves good teaching. What happens when we get involved in bad behavior? In ba we want to justify that bad behavior by changing our theology and twisting it and distorting it in order to convince ourselves that, well, we've got permission to do what we really want to do anyway and no, we shouldn't. So Paul's correcting both. And he says, you guys shouldn't be hanging around with folks who are living like this because this problem's spreading amongst you. They're infecting you. I don't know who's saying it's okay, but I'm telling you it's not okay. Be careful who you imitate. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says this. Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Anyone who's been through school knows this. The friends you choose will eventually impact how you live. And we worry about that as parents. We worry about the way our kids behave when they're choosing friends. And we know that some are bad news. And it won't be long before our kids are tempted and encouraged to do the same kind of things that we see them doing. And saying the same things and joining in with what's going on. But those are teenagers and adults, well, we do the very same thing. We just act, try to act like we're more mature about it somehow. It's ex we do exactly the same thing. The company we keep on a day-to-day -day basis influence our behaviour. So Paul's basically saying, don't keep bad company. Don't continue to hang around with the wrong crowd. Separate yourselves and let them join you in the right crowd. It's not cutting them off and not talking. It, it, it's, it's how you associate. Who copies who? And if you can't, if you're being absorbed into the bad culture, you have to step back from it. And sometimes that call has to be made. But understand that Paul only made it here after a long series of situations. Paul first taught them. Then he lived as an example amongst them and in front of them. And then he called them out on it in his first letter. And then after all of this teaching and crying and working and praying, they're still not changing. And so he says, guys, we've got to get serious about this. But he's not doing it heartlessly. He's not doing it, he's doing it lovingly. He's treating them as brothers. He doesn't forget that they are still in Christ but you can't allow this behavior to continue. So we, see, follow, we always follow steps that we see in Scripture. Instead of jumping to the big guns straight away, or we jump to assumptions, or we talk about people, we talk to them one-to-one, -one, as Jesus taught us. And if they don't listen, we bring in a brother or sister. 
with us and we talk to them as friends, as siblings in the Lord and loving and telling the truth and pleading and praying. And if that doesn't work, we bring in a ministry leader, a youth worker, a home group leader, an elder and try and help them. And it's not until all of those steps are taken that there's even any talk of separation. But often people just lump, jump to the big guns instead of talking to someone who needs to be talked to and encouraged and we unlovingly pull away and when we should be drawing close and we should talk and help and we talk about instead of to. So anyway, there we go. We see Paul trying to teach him in multiple ways, imitate his work ethic, his theology and we see it also in the way he's dealing with the problems in the church and he sets the example. In verse 7 it goes on. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, labouring and toiling, so that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. He reminds them of his own example. You know, he actually said, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. What a great thing when we're able to say to someone else, follow my example, to know we've set a good example to our kids, to other folks, younger in the faith, whatever, when we're able to say that. It's like, hey, I'm not perfect, understand that, but as I follow Christ, as I seek to follow Christ in those things, follow my example. And I'll help you and I'll lead you as best I can. So as an apostle, as a church planter, as a pastor, as an evangelist, he laid down this example of a good lifestyle. And the two things he did, he worked hard not to be a burden on other people, and then he paid for his own food in this specific example. And by doing these things, he was able to win people over to Christ without being a burden on them. And this is really interesting because culturally, there were these false teachers at the time who'd travel around. And when you don't have TV and the internet and Facebook and smartphones and stuff, and a new teacher comes into your town, guess who everybody wants to listen to? And some of them were treated like celebrities. And so the get to stay at people's homes and be put up in the best room and get the best food and they take advantage of the hospitality and generosity and they take a lot of money off the folks, they'd fleece them and some of these false teachers they'd be great speakers, perhaps even good comedians and whatever tricks and skills they used they'd fleece the flock and they'd teach bad theology and Paul's like, hey I'm an authentic apostle but I won't even ask for what might be my rights as a pastor and an apostle and that was a huge task. Believe me, as an elder who also works in secular employment, I can say it was a significant workload. I wouldn't compare myself with Paul's work in any way. But trying to give you full attention to two jobs, just your attention is hard enough. And the reality is that in the long term, if a ministry is going to be sustainable and you aren't going to burn the elders out, you need leaders who are paid to do nothing else but lead the church. Otherwise, after a few years, if the church is at all active, they'll crash and burn. So Paul didn't stay and do it for very long. While he did, it was a period of freedom. For him. He could say he wasn't doing anything for money, he was doing it purely because he loved Christ. And we have that ethos at Regent, I hope we do. We have a free will offering. We don't pressure people to tithe. We're open and we're honest about how much the ministry costs, the accounts are available, and we leave it up to people's conscience how much they're able to contribute to support what the Lord's doing here. And Regent isn't about money. We humbly look at what the Lord provides and we make plans on the basis of what we believe the Lord's telling us to do with that, what He's given us. And we hold to a vision for the future. And ultimately we look at what's been provided and we do the best we can with what it is. And we're generous and we're not tight-fisted. Last year we gave £5,000 to missionaries around the world on top of running our own ministries and, and, and saving up to extend the building. And all from an average congregation of, what, 90 people? 
and maybe 40 families. And so it's with joy we can say this, we do this because we love Jesus. Not because it's about a career or business or enterprise. We're living day to day, hand to mouth, because we trust the Lord. And if he's asked us to do something, we trust him, he'll touch people's hearts and we'll provide what's necessary for it to happen. We don't force it out. And we don't talk much about money, although I'm talking about it now. Other than to be accountable for what we've received as gifts and offering. The Lord directs, the Lord provides. We've seen him do that. At the minute, we're looking to fund our CAP Death Centre as, a, as our, the initial funding we had runs out. We're looking to the future. We've no clue where all that money's going to come from. But we've sent out letters to trusts and so on, and we were in the Lord's hands for the 10,000 or so that's needed for the rest of the year. So please keep praying. And I've had to add this, because when I was preparing these notes on Wednesday, I was saying we haven't heard back. And then I got a notice from Andy saying we've got a check-in for £1,000 from the Hospital of God at Gretham a charity down in Hartlepool. Praise the Lord, he's begun answering our prayers on that. So we put the need out there, but we don't beg, and we don't cajole, and we don't prostitute the gospel, trying to link the amount of giving to the church with personal prosperity. We don't pretend that by giving to the church, you can somehow buy your way into heaven. And Paul had seen it, and he knew that the Lord took care of those things. So what was the first and foremost thing? The word of God was the first and foremost thing, not money. That was what was important. If it led to no money, he wasn't going to change that. He wasn't going to use it for his own benefit. And like the, like the snake oil salesman who enriched themselves through false teaching. So be careful when you watch the God Channel or see other things about the Christian world and false teachers are driving expensive cars and private jets and living in mansions and such. And If they're getting it from the church, it's bad news. Be careful. Stay away. It's bad lifestyle leads to bad theology. Paul encouraged people instead to walk in his footsteps. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, he'd said this, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. And you know when Paul's writing this, this first letter, the image that's being conjured up in their own minds is of Paul's example himself, because that's exactly what Paul did. That's what he lived out. What he's pre- he walked the walk as well as talking the talk. And he teaches hard work is a godly value. It's a godly virtue. God actually created us to work in the first place. In Genesis 2.15, he said, we read, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. God created us to work. One of the hardest things for men is not to be working. To those of us with busy jobs, it might sound like a dream come true at first, until you have no job. It messes with your identity, your personality, with your mood, with everything. Why? Because God created us to work. Thank God there's a time for retirement and and everything. I'm looking forward to that point myself. I'm 50 this year. No, I don't look it, but I am. I'm 50 this year. And so I'm only a few months of being off, being allowed to access my work pension if I wanted to. So I keep terrifying Victoria with the threat of retiring and being around the house all day. And she's not enamoured with that and keeps telling me we can't afford it. But when I look around, the, around here at the folks who've retired, the truth is they often work even harder than I do, often for the church. Great examples. But idleness and laziness is actually a sin. Not vacation, not relaxation. Those aren't sinful things. Those are good things that can become misused. Even the Lord made a whole day every week to rest. And he set the example. He worked six days in creation and rested on the seventh. And he's like, everyone okay? Follow my example. 
work and then rest. Rest is an act of obedient worship just as much as work is. But letting idleness and laziness creep into the days when we should be working isn't good. God often calls people who are busy being faithful to do something more for his kingdom. Moses was watching over his father-in-law's flocks of sheep when he was called. Joshua was Moses' servant for years after being called. Gideon was threshing wheat when God called him. David was caring for his father's sheep when God called him. Four of the disciples were actually fishing when God called them. And even Jesus himself worked as a carpenter for many years. If you think it's spiritual to not do anything because you say, I'm waiting for God to tell me, to show me what he's got for me, you're going to be waiting a long time. Why? Because God calls those who are already faithful with little to be faithful with the things of the kingdom. It's the parable of the talents all over again. Be content and faithful where you are before hankering for something God doesn't deem you to be ready for yet. So Jesus says this in Luke 16, verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with little will also be dishonest with much. God may have only given you a little responsibility right now. You only may be young. You may feel you haven't had the opportunities in life that others have had. But that's the place God's made for you. In the little things. And then he'll call you to do more. But if you're dishonest even with those little small things, uh, you can't even do those graciously and conscientiously, then there's no way that God is going to place great trust in you to do something great for his kingdom. Verse 9, the second Thessalonians, he goes on. He, we did this not because you don't have the right to such help. We, we do not have the right for such help to, to earn money as an apostle he's talking about. But in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who's unwilling to work shall not eat. Compassion's godly. But in society, we have to be careful. If our society is, to so, is so generous to those who won't work, it actually undermines itself and destroys lives rather than building them up. This passage says it's our responsibility to earn our living. It isn't someone else's responsibility to sacrifice from their resources to feed us. There's a clear moral line here between those who are unable to work and those who are unwilling to work. And we should be loving and kind, but ultimately the unwilling are not our responsibility to feed. They're their own responsibility. And taking that responsibility away from them is harmful and ultimately unkind. God's not so interested in providing for our comfort as he's interested in developing our character. I've said that many times. Woe betide us in the way, if we get in the way of how God's developing someone else's character by choosing to ignore his instructions for how we're to behave towards them. And be very careful not to be political here. But it's very easy to use this, kind of, this passage to justify unkindness and meanness and unfairness, where they're comfortably off blame the poor for being poor. And they label people nasty lanes like benefit scrounger and things like that. And they abdicate responsibility for society's problems and they justify unfairness and the exploitation of the powerless. And that's dead wrong. And the Bible condemns that attitude. But it's also easy to go too far in the other direction, in the name of compassion, and to pretend that this passage doesn't exist. And to justify wanting some sort of utopian society where none of us are responsible for ourselves, and the state, or the wealthy, or the powerful, or someone else is responsible for everything. 
and it's all their fault. And we end up looking to the state or the powerful or whoever it is they are for salvation and not to the Lord. There's a fine line to tread. There's inequality of income now. But there was even greater inequality of income in Paul's day. Society is unfair. It's always been unfair. And it always will be unfair, however hard we work to make it as fair as we can. Because men are sinners. And this world is fallen. And the perfect society will never exist this side of heaven. And we're called not to judge scripture in the light of our understanding of society. But we're to base our society on the principles of scripture. Scripture is God's word, not man's word. It's not man's wisdom. And God trumps man every time. And that may not be fashionable. And it may bring mockery and even embarrassment and censure on us. We may lose a few Facebook friends. But we're accountable to our father first. Before we're accountable to our friends and our neighbours. Society changes. Prevailing morality changes. The word of God is eternal and everlasting and true. Now in our lives we can talk big and social media is full of that. The government should do this. The council should do that. What matters is really what we do. Paul refused to be dependent on those he was sharing the gospel with. He set that example. He didn't want to show up as some celebrity teacher being paid the big bucks. He wanted to be different. So even though he had the absolute right to say the scriptures support me in receiving funds for my job, he chose not to take that right. That's why he worked night and day. It's a tough place to be. And Paul chose not to, to take up his right. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 12 he says, If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we all have it all the more? But we didn't use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. What a great heart he has. He laid down his rights to earn an income because he had a responsibility to serve. And it's becoming quite offensive to British culture to say things like that. We're all about rights, our rights, and we try and ignore our responsibilities. If anyone tramples on our rights, we're up there shouting about it. That's my right. You've got no right to take it away from me. But if someone reminds us of our responsibilities, ooh, how very dare they. But that's just what Jesus did when he left heaven. He laid aside these of his divine power to submit to the Father's will. He came to the earth in the form of a servant, as we've read. He submitted to death on a cross. Not because he had to, but because he wanted to. Because he loved us. He gave up his heavenly rights to take up the responsibility of fulfilling his Father's will. And Paul imitates that example through his hard work and his labour. Why? For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of others. Not because it made his life easier. Sometimes we lay aside our rights in a situation in which God says, hey, set aside your rights to honour, set aside your right to be listened to at the moment, to reach out, to allow the gospel to shine. If you ever have that opportunity, it's a privilege. Sometimes we lay aside our rights to serve others, to serve those in the church. And we see this as, a pas- as this passage, it goes on in verse 11. Not only do we see these, ver- these great examples to imitate like Paul, but we also have to refrain from being busy with all the wrong things. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive, he says, carries on, verse 11. They're not busy, they're busy bodies. Many cultures see idleness as negative. The Romans had a proverb, by doing nothing men learn to do evil. Cato of the Younger came up with that one apparently. 
The rabbis, the Jewish rabbis would say, he who doesn't teach his son a trade teaches his son to be a thief. Which is quite a clever one, I thought. All we have to do is to be idle. Look at King David's big sin. In 2 Samuel verse 11, it says, in the spring at the time when the kings went off to war. Well, where was David? He wasn't going off to war. He was hanging around the palace, chilling, watching Netflix. And he's sitting out on the balcony and his eyes wander. And he just noticed this pretty woman bathing, Bathsheba, and he falls into horrible sin after horrible sin because he's not doing what he should have done. He left that to other people and he was twiddling his thumbs and got up to trouble. Why? He wasn't doing anything productive with his time. He was wasting it. Paul's not speaking here of unemployment. He's not speaking of disability or any valid reason for not having a job. Those things happen to us from time to time and the trials of life. And when they do, they can be devastating and it's tough. But even if that's your case, don't be idle in your condition or your situation. Whether it be health or whether it be that you lost your job, idleness will put you into depression. There's plenty of things you can do for the Lord. Working on getting as well as you can and in as, employment as, as employable as you can and listening to the good advice of those around you and who love you, however painful it may be at times, if it's honest, that's a good start. A long time ago, I worked at a charity that ran schemes trying to help folks out of alcohol abuse and, and drug abuse. And one of the things they found always helped them out was helping other people. It's so good for us. It's so important for us. And you always find a way to serve and to do something. It may not always be what you want to be or what you imagine in your head you are, but you can always find something. For instance, what about being working on a disciplined and ordered prayer life? Interceding before the Lord on, a, on others' behalf on a daily, organized basis. It's something we could all do. Even the weakest and least physically able of us can do. And what greater work is there than that? Doing something useful with the time that you have. The season you're going through is there for a reason. Our circumstances breed character. We're tried and tested in different ways. Poverty is a teacher. Wealth is a teacher. And we can accept it or fight it, but it's true. Learning those lessons that, the that we're being taught, whatever they are, however painful they are, is important. We're unlikely to learn them spending time in front of the TV watching Jeremy Kyle or on a perpetual holiday jet-setting around the place depending on your bank balance. So we see this work here, this difference here of being busy at work and not being a busybody. If you're reading in the Greek language, you may be following along in your Greek text, this is a kind of a pun. It's a pun in English in the English translation, so Bob will appreciate it, I know, but it's, it's, a, it's also a pun in Greek. It's a literary device. And the two words look very alike. And I really struggle to pronounce these, but ergazominus means working, and periergazominus means being busybodies. A busybody is someone who interferes in someone else's life. A description some languages used is putting your spoon in someone else's bowl. <laughs> I like that. You know, you're out at a restaurant, and, 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 and you've ordered what you want, and you're sitting, and you're about to enjoy it, and you notice the person next to you has got big eyes and he's look, they're looking at your plate and it's probably your wife and they've decided what you've ordered is more interesting than what they ordered and, and I hate that, I get so ungracious I have an exact amount of food on the plate that I want so I, I don't want to share it <laughs> but the fork comes over and can I just no <laughs> worst of all the, pretty much the worst thing a wife can ever say to a husband is 
I don't want a whole one myself. Can, I, can we just share one? To, can we order one to share? No! Order your own food. If you don't want all of it, give me half. But don't have half of mine. I want all of it. I'm so horrible, sorry. <laughs> I need more grace. But it winds us up, doesn't it, that, that, that situation. Someone sticking their nebby nose into our business. Keep out. Don't stir the pot. But being a busybody means you're not doing anything useful. And busybody behavior becomes destructive. It actually pulls things down. It tears things apart. It can break up families and communities. And we all have a tendency to be busybodies, if we're honest. We become lazy. And with our laziness, we become critical. And we whinge about what they should be doing something else. That's the wrong way to do it. They're being stupid. Why are they doing that? And we complain and we talk and we say things we shouldn't. And instead of just working and getting on with it and working hard quietly with strength and the power that God provides... Verse 12, it says this. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. Get on with the job. And again, we have two words that in Greek are, in the Greek original, are very similar. Another of Paul's play on words, command and urge. Perangelomen and para, parakalumen. But they sound very similar, so they sound similar enough when I say them. With the Greek accent, it probably sounds even more so. The word command kind of sounds bad in our modern Western culture. We don't like being commanded. We don't think anyone's got the right to tell us what to do. It gets our backs up. If I pointed up my finger at you and said, I command you to get off that chair, you'd be all, don't tell me what to do. What right have you got to do that? But it's not in that connotation Paul's talking about, command. He's saying this. It's, it's, he's just passing on an announcement, passing on an order from a superior officer of what must be done. It's passing on the commands of someone who does have the right to command. It's like if you're in the army and the colonel's adjutant comes up to you and passes on the orders of the day. He's commanding you, but not in his own right. He's just telling you what high command says you've got to get on and do. Paul's not being bossy. He's just passing on. And if we disobey, we aren't just disobeying Paul. We're ignoring the Lord. But this word encourage is also cool. Paul doesn't just run alongside and share with them the command. He encourages them to do it. He puts his arm around and says, look, it's great. You can do it. Encouragement comes in all sorts of ways. It can be an arm around the shoulder. It can be a handshake, a fist bump if you're being hygienic. It could be a thank you note, a meal out, a bunch of flowers, a hug. Find ways to encourage one another. Paul, when he finds people in sin, he's like, I'm going to pass on the message from the Lord, but I'm also going to come alongside you, put my arm around you, and help you along. We're going to get there together. If there are people suffering in this area around you, have you taken someone under your wing to teach them what's right instead of just looking down on them? Oh, those lazy millennials, those self-entitled brats, or whatever the old fogies might say. Don't be an old fogey. Be a mentor. Come alongside. How do you do that? This is the solution for being a busybody. Martin Luther King, speaking at a junior high school to students in Philadelphia in 1967, said this. If it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the host of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. No matter what the job you're doing, do it like that, but for the Lord. 
The motivation behind our work changes everything. How could you work quietly? You have the right motivation. You have to have the right motivation. Be the best you can be. The motivation of how you do your work. If, if it's not as high as serving the Lord, then you're not going about doing as good a job as you should be doing. Whatever it is, even sweeping sweets. Sweeping sweets? Sweeping sweets. I knew when I picked that, I was going to struggle. In Colossians 3.17, it says, Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Your job's scrubbing the loo. Then get out that little brush and scrub and say, Thank you, Lord, for this job. I'm going to make it as clean as I can make it for you. Because he's watching. The virtue of hard work applies to kingdom work as well. What you do in things of earth reflects on what you do in things for heaven. So we close with just the last few words which Paul sums it all up. Verse 13. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of what is, doing, what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Don't dissociate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. So hang out with the right crowd. Hopefully, if they're part of the wrong crowd, they'll join you. Yet do not regard, regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would warn a fellow believer. Don't start hating, don't start gossiping, bad-mouthing folks. Warn them as a brother. Brothers watch each other's backs. Even if they're punching each other's faces the minutes before, they've got each other's backs. That's the way brothers are. It's the way it should be in the church. Not the punching bit, the other bit. <laughs> now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. So, as we close, maybe the Lord's encouraging you to stop idolising the <coughs> idols. Isn't it funny? The idlers get all of the airtime, and the hard workers are quiet. And it's not going to be the loud ones, it's going to be the quiet hard workers who see the need and just muck in and carry the load. Let's close in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for being the hardest worker amongst us all. You came... And you ran the race and you laboured on the cross and you shed your blood for all of us. For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of our salvation. Amen.